And now, with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved, here is Dr. James Houck. Well, hello, hello, everybody. Good afternoon, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, helping you find your courage to reclaim that which has always been in you. Very glad to be with you here today and every Friday afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, and any other time in between. I am Dr. James Hauk, and if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's shows or other shows, I just invite you to, to visit the website. That address is www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity. So www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity. And if you would like to call in today and uh, join in on the conversation or to have any questions or, or other comments, the, that number is 888 888- Six two seven six zero zero eight. That's eight 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 six two seven six zero zero eight. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. And so I always like to talk to people, and they call in for any questions or otherwise. And uh, these uh, broadcasts are now podcasted in case you want to go back and listen again, or if you want to go back into the archives and listen to previous shows, you can do that at your leisure. Um, And now they are also available for download on Audible or Amazon Music, and you can even listen to Station One on iHeartRadio. And for those who just might be uh, turning the dial, as we say, and tuning in for the first time, I wanted to say welcome to the show. I always enjoy having new listeners, and each and every week, these broadcasts are dedicated to the integration of spirituality and our mental health. And I'll say a little bit more about this uh, integration and um, how I came up with that. And it's just something that's uh, quite unique when we uh, put these two disciplines together. So the integration of spirituality and mental health. And I just wanted to take a moment just before we get into today's show, just to thank everybody for your support over the past year. And uh, would just like to say that uh, you now have the opportunity to continue your support by becoming a monthly subscriber. Now, um, just a little caveat here. Uh, Subscription is not required to listen to any of these broadcasts, but it is greatly appreciated. So, again, just invite you to go to the website and click on the link uh, and choose any amount that you feel comfortable giving. And, again, just thank you for your support. Well, Interestingly, there is a call out there to live a, a more authentic life, and it is a it is a call. It's a tug. It's an inner nudge, if we can say, uh, that is becoming increasingly poignant these days. 
And in, it seems that everywhere we turn, uh, genuineness and authenticity are becoming more and more rare uh, characteristics among people who are just really searching for a palpable substance in their relationships. And uh, nowadays, society is rapidly conditioning generations and generations to question the motives and desires of others like never before. And in one sense, that's healthy. In the other sense, not so much. Okay, just let me give you a quick example here. That uh, personal image is at an all-time fever pitch, as it seems that one reality show after another presents us with anything but reality. And daily, we're, it seems like we're being sold the message that to be the most socially acceptable person out there, you know, you have to have this socially acceptable persona that money can buy and what kind of image that one puts out there and so forth and how many likes that you get on this page and so on and so forth and who's going to see your posts and all that. And in fact, it seems as though that the more drama and the more tears, the, the better the front page story. You know, who can outshock who or who can accumulate more toys and points than anybody else or likes and, and who has more guile or more trickery. Um, who's more cunning, either by hook or by crook? And uh, the cutthroat politics and religious scandals have just saturated the daily news as bewildered people in coffee shops and bars uh, can just kind of look at each other and just wonder, how much worse can it get? Well, instead of taking people at face value, we are now becoming accustomed to ask, what's the catch? And perhaps as a result of a number of uh, humiliating and painful experiences, we, as a society, individually and collectively, we avoid any further investing of, of let's say, a physical, emotional, or spiritual parts of ourselves in relationships. In fact, furthermore, you know, out of our brokenness, we may feel that we just cannot risk being a victim to yet another example of fraud or trickery and or dishonesty. But the, the past physical, psychological, and spiritual wounding has taken too much out of us and leaving us to believe that others simply conspire to take advantage of our vulnerability. And yet I see this as uh, just a very powerful dilemma that we face today. Because on one hand, to, to strive for genuineness and authenticity in relationships often demands a level of vulnerability from us. Yeah, in, other, in other words, before we can expect and appreciate authenticity from another person, we're forced to confront our own inconsistencies and or inauthentic ways. And as idealistic as this kind of human interaction sounds, Genuineness and authenticity in relationships are tangible, but they do indeed require a lifelong commitment to self-discovery and honesty about who we are with all of our warts and gifts and phobias and strengths and graces and personalities and so forth. Now, it's unfortunate that this kind of commitment is considered by many, you know, just too high of a price to pay and simply not worth their time. <clears throat> I mean, 
for some people, wouldn't it just be easier to be satisfied with the status quo or go with the flow and just not question these things? Well, that might be the frequently traveled road, but also let's not deceive ourselves. This inner desire for genuineness and authenticity in relationships with ourselves and others and even our relationship with God is not going to go away. I mean, moreover, that, that internal logging to be um, uh, more authentic and truer to ourselves will only get stronger. It's a longing in which we um, can try to push away, push down, ignore, but it just continues to grow and grow and grow. It's this inner ache in us for this authentic relationships. And the question really comes down to just how much more sleep do we want to keep losing night after night? And how many more times are we going to blame others for what we don't have? Uh, Well, that's where we're going to begin today. So as I usually start these uh, broadcasts, you know, with a question, how is your heart today? I will continue with that because I hope your heart is well. I hope you are well. And I hope that if you are struggling today, you will find the rest and comfort and peace that you need. So, welcome to today's show, Square Pegs and Round Holes, Integrating Spiritual Awakening Beyond Earthly Expectations. Well, how many of you at one time or another felt as though you found it difficult to fit in with this world? And, and I'm certainly convinced we spend a, a lot of energy trying to fit into a mold of another's making just to get a sense of belonging. Many people find success in that and whatever definition of success they're using, but many people do not. In fact, more and more people are seeing themselves as a square peg, as it were, who are trying to fit into a round hole, and they're constantly wrestling with and asking themselves, how come I don't fit? Why does this seem to be such a struggle? Why does it seem like the harder I try to fit in, the more difficult it seems to be? And and yet there is another phenomenon that occurs in people who at one point or another in their lives have experienced a powerful spiritual awakening. Or, or a spiritual experience in which they have stopped trying to fit in, you know, they, and they opt out of trying to fit into their round holes, and they choose to leave it behind. Well, in other words, because when you think about it, they've been so filled with that spiritual awakening, that, that spiritual awareness, that transformation that's begun in them, that uh, they've outgrown the former ways of thinking and doing and feeling as though they cannot grow in and through, you know, uh, that previous way of life where they can't grow in and through, you know, that system that they were once raised in or that they had become accustomed to. They just can't fit into that any longer. And as uncomfortable as it is and as it may seem, this is actually a very good place to be. You know, to to be in this process of, of searching and to be open and to be teachable and to be aware of how uh, transformation is slowly taking place. But it's not a passive transformation. Uh, 
we do indeed have a very active part in continuing this transformation, what has begun in us. And it all boils down to what kind of integration are we, um, shall we say, taking up? Or what kind of integration are we participating in? And, and just seeking just a continual transformation. Well, indeed, transformation is, is all around us. You know, everywhere in our life, we have the, you know, we have different cycles of death and resurrection. And um, just on the, like the uh, the nature side of thing, things, you know, each year we witness this cycle that's so evident in the change of seasons as, let's say, summer gives way to autumn, which then eventually gives way to winter, which gives way to spring and so forth. In fact, I was just talking to somebody earlier this week that it just, for me, the middle to the end of February is my time where it's like, okay, come on, let's get into March. Let's get into spring. Come on, it can start to warm up now. It's good. And it was probably just a fatigue of winter that's setting in for me. But um, we do have the change of seasons. And there's actually even this death-resurrection metaphor or theme that also underlines the work of psychotherapy, the work that I do. In fact, more often than not, transformation occurs in the most unlikely ways when we're not paying attention, when we're minding our own business, and then bam, there it is, it shows up. Okay, so let me share with you an example of just a very powerful transformation in myself. Um, years ago, in one of the mental health offices where I worked, hung a framed quote from the family therapist, Virginia Satir. And if you've been listening to these broadcasts for some time, you know that I love Virginia Satir, and I probably already shared this story uh, many times. But um, this quote of Virginia Satir has just always stayed with me the very first time that I had seen it. And it goes like this. I want to love you without clutching. I want to appreciate you without judging. I want to join you without invading. I want to invite you without demanding. I want to leave you without guilt. I want to criticize you without blaming. I want to help you without insulting. And if I can have the same from you, then we can truly meet each other. Well, day after day, I, I pass by this quote, and, and yet I never really stop to read it. I never let it sink in, let alone understand its impact on relationships both within and outside the counseling relationship. So one day, eating my lunch, I, I read and I reread that quote slowly. I remember, copied it down, just carried it with me and pulled it out and just, you know, looking at it and just really meditating on it. And I remember saying to myself at one point, wow, this is a powerful saying, but it's just far too demanding. Too many conditions, too many changes would be required of, of people to reach this level of relationships. And moreover, I assumed that it's just unrealistic to place this kind of pressure on another person and expect them to keep their part of the bargain. Well, in various counseling and pastoral settings, I have witnessed 
too many people, and including myself, you know, just making excuses for not wanting to be authentic in relationships. I mean, I've heard sayings such as, I've been hurt, fool me once, shame on you. She hurt my feelings, and so forth. And yet, the more I sat with this quote from Virginia Satir, there was something just kind of resonating within me, you know, identifying with those words as if I had truth staring me right in the face. So for days and weeks that followed, this gnawing inside of me to reclaim my own authenticity only became stronger. And, you know, Satir's words pursued me like a shadow I couldn't outrun. And uh, little did I realize at the time that I was reading her goals for her own life. See, Satir was born in... 1916, and she was certainly, if we can say, ahead of her time. And instead of viewing humanity's problems as stemming from, let's say, the neurosis of her day, she believed that problems were the result of how people were unprepared to cope with life's challenges, whether they are past or present or future. In fact, in in some of her writings, she used to say, life is not what it's supposed to be. It is what it is, but the way you cope with it makes the difference. Satir believed that all people are equipped with the capacity for growth, transformation, and continuing education, focusing her technique on finding a person's true inner self. In fact, it could be said that Satir's life, you know, her passion, um, and just in the way she worked with individuals and families, was really to empower them to live more congruent, genuine lives. And I like that. I like that very much. But, you know, authenticity is often a foreign concept to many people. Uh, Yet, despite not knowing what to call it, Still, people are attracted to genuineness in relationships and desperately want more of it in their relationships. But is this realistic? I mean, just how real can a person be with others? You know, because it's one thing to look in the mirror and to see ourselves for who we are. It's a matter, it's another matter altogether not to succumb to the opinions of others. I mean, Too often we we live our lives under the relentless bombardment of another person's condition for acceptance. And Satir used to say that we must not allow uh, another person's limited perception to define us. Which brings us back to kind of like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Well, when you think about it, you know, we are raised with so many conditions, conditions that are placed on love and relationships, uh, conditions that are, are placed on performance and perspectives, that we often approach life with a what's-the-catch mentality. Well, one of my other favorite books, besides, <laughs> um, besides just many that I'm looking at in my bookshelf even today, um, just many from Paulo Coelho, um, one book I truly love is The Return of the Prodigal Son, written by Henry Nouwen. And Nouwen paints a picture of just how unfulfilling 
conditional love is. And he writes, at issue here is the question, to whom do I belong? Do I belong to God or do I belong to the world? And many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world than God. Because a little criticism makes me angry, and a little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits, and a little success excites me. It takes very little to raise me up or even to thrust me down. And often I am like a small boat on the ocean, completely at the mercy of its waves. In all the time and energy I spend in keeping some kind of balance and preventing myself from being tipped over and drowning shows that my life is mostly a struggle for survival. Not a holy struggle, but an anxious struggle, resulting from the mistaken idea that it's the world that defines me. So as long as I keep running about asking, do you love me? I mean, do you really love me? I give all the power to the voices of the world and put myself back in bondage because the world is filled with ifs. The world says, yes, I love you if you are good looking. I love you if you are intelligent. I love you if you are wealthy. I love you if you have a good education, a, a good job, and good connections. I love you if you produce much and sell much and buy much. However, there are endless ifs hidden in the world's love. These ifs enslave me, since it is impossible to respond adequately to all of them. The world's love is and always will be conditional. And as long as I keep looking for my true self in the world of conditional love, I will remain hooked to the world, trying and failing and trying again. It is a world that fosters addictions because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest cravings of my heart. Well, in my work as a mental health therapist and pastoral professional, I have sat with many, many people. I've assisted people to become more authentic in their relationships. And I've, we've sat and we've uh, you know, talked through and talked about and just meditated on Virginia Satir's quote, as well as Henry Nouwen's writing here in The Return of the Prodigal Son. And as I said, I insist people to become more authentic in their relationships and really to take an honest look at themselves and ourselves and consider what role and responsibility we have in relationships. Because too often, people want to blame others for their own mistakes or their own problems and sleepless nights. But, um, you know, if truth be told, according to the band The Eagles, you know, so often times it happens that we live our lives in chains and we never even know we have the key. Okay, sound familiar? And again, this philosophy sounds great, but it also takes great courage to turn the key, let alone step outside of the chains, and walk in one's newfound freedom. 
that is very difficult to do. So many changes that we have to uh, make. And this is where integration comes in. How do we live out these new experiences? How do we live out this newfound freedom? And this is a, you know, a very similar metaphor found in Charles Dickinson's A Christmas Carol. Um, now, Dickens was one who was deeply disturbed by the way the poor were being treated in his day. And his writings were often viewed in response to the British government changing the welfare system known as the poor laws that required children to work in, let's say, the tin mines and factories and welfare applicants to work on treadmills. That is, the machine engine powered turning just by walking. Well, in Dickinson's eyes, the Industrial Revolution just simply drove many people into poverty. And yet, at the same time, it neglected its obligation to provide just basic, humane social services. So his his story, A Christmas Carol, was set on Christmas Eve back in 1843, and it was seven years after the death of Ebenezer Scrooge's business partner, Jacob Marley. Now, to uh, set the stage, Dickens describes Scrooge as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner one who finds no room in his heart for any form of kindness or compassion or love or generosity. In fact, Scrooge really despises Christmas, and he decides to spend it alone, although he's invited to his nephew Fred's home. He even goes so far as to chase away two gentlemen who ask him for uh, a donation to provide just a, a very modest Christmas dinner for the poor. And, and that night, Scrooge, as you know the story, Scrooge is visited by Jacob Marley's ghost. And Marley was forced to wear the, these cumbersome chains of misery and regret in the afterlife. And it's, it's through this visitation that Marley warns Scrooge to change his greedy and unforgiving ways. Otherwise, he will experience the same miserable afterlife as himself. Well... Scrooge is then visited by three additional ghosts, each in turn, um, you know, and, and, and each visit of them detailed just a, a separate point to make. And uh, they all accompany him to various scenes with the hope of achieving this transformation. And as you know, the story, it worked. Okay. By morning, Scrooge has un undergone a complete transformation in his heart and in his soul. He breathes a sigh of relief as he realizes that he has not missed Christmas, and he begins to lavish goodwill and gifts on anyone he meets. And moreover, he cannot keep his newfound joy to himself, especially to the Cratchit family. And the lesson is well concluded that there is hope for all of humanity, because even the most covetous old sinner is capable of a change of heart. Well, you know, I, I really wish Dickens had written a sequel to A Christmas Carol, because I would really love to have seen how Ebenezer Scrooge's life turned out. I mean, how did he spend the rest of his days? How many lives did he actually touch, 
you know, in life-changing ways after that first Christmas. How did this transformation carry him through tough times that uh, he may have faced in the future? And so on and so on. I mean, these are the real questions that follow such a, a powerful spiritual transformation. How do we integrate what has so turned our world so upside down? Well, I'd really love to hear your heart on this subject. So, again, if you would like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. And I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. I'll be back with you in one minute. Okay, welcome back. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Again, just a quick word about next week's show. Um, next Friday, we that was going to be February the 25th, so we're just about out of February. Not quite, but just about. So next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, and we're going to continue this conversation about uh, just where transformation takes us and just what does it mean to integrate these spiritual experiences that we have um, and just where does transformation begin and continue does it begin in our minds does it begin in our hearts how do we live it out on a physical level how do we live it out on a psychological level how do we live out a transformation and you know within our emotions and even on a spiritual level, and so forth. So I invite you to, to tune in next Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, as we're going to continue this uh, discussion on the integration that leads towards transformation. Well, earlier in the show, I was talking about how we spend a lot of energy just trying to fit into the mold or molds of uh, other people's making, just to get a sense of belonging. You know, we, we struggle for so long, perhaps, of just trying to fit in, you know, whether that be like more of making friends or, you know, what's my purpose and direction and goal and meaning in life and so forth. And many people do find success in that, you know, whatever, and again, that whatever definition of success they are using. But many people often struggle with this. You know, where do I fit in? Where do I fit? Where do I not fit? And so forth. But 
more and more people, especially the ones that I talk to and hang out with, are seeing themselves as a square peg, as it were, uh, who are trying to fit into a round hole. And, and they're asking themselves and getting frustrated, like, why don't I fit there? Why does it seem like the harder I try to fit in, the more difficult it seems to be? And, you know, the go-to, automatic go-to answer is, well, maybe you are not supposed to fit into that round hole and so forth. So, okay. So um, there's also uh, another phenomenon that's occurring uh, in today's society and, and, and often, you know, it's down through history as well, that people who at one point or another in their lives um, who have, let's say, experienced a very powerful spiritual awakening or, or just another powerful spiritual experience in which they opt out of trying to fit into another person's round hole and uh, but choose to leave it behind. They just say, I'm not going to try to fit into the mold of another person because I can't. Because they have been so filled with that spiritual awakening that they've actually outgrown the former ways of thinking and doing and feeling as though they cannot grow in and through that system any longer. And as uncomfortable as it may seem, this is actually a very healthy place to be. It's a very good place to be, you know, because at that point, you know, you're searching and, and you're open and you're teachable and you're aware of how a transformation has taken place and that it's ongoing, that it's continuous. And ironically, this is exactly where integration and transformation intersect. So even if we don't know exactly where the transformation is going to take us, we know that a, a change has occurred. And we can point to the fact that we just, we're not finding a good place to fit in because maybe that's not the place for us to be. Okay. So, but we are open to, okay, so where do I fit? Where is this transformation taking me? And we need to not only integrate, but we also need to surrender to this and trust. So whenever we have a spiritual awakening and our lives are turned upside down, this is only the beginning. You know, now comes this task of integrating how we live this out on a daily basis. In other words, you know, how do we spend the rest of our days? You know, how many lives do we touch in life-changing ways in the ordinariness of life? And, and how does this transformation carry us through the tough times that we face? And these are real questions that follow such a powerful spiritual transformation. How do we integrate what has so turned our world upside down? Okay. And this is something that I even see in Scripture. You know, I often am drawn to the stories in which, you know, um, we have somebody, we have a character in, in the Bible or the Bhagavad Gita or, or you know, uh, some other sacred Scripture. And we just, um, we only see them for very limited time. In fact, they may just come into a story and they leave and that's it. We never hear from them again. And I often wonder, you know, just what happened to their life? You know, uh, you know, where did they go from there? How, how did this transformation that started in them that we're privy to through the story, what did that look like a year from then, 
three years, five years, 10 years, 30 years, or whatever it might be. And I tell you, in, in the Gospels, we have more of those stories of individuals that just come in and out of, of the Gospel stories and have this interaction with Jesus. They um, uh, find their healing, they um, have their needs met, or prayers answered, something. And they are transformed just right then and there. And then they leave, and we never hear from them again. And so I thought it would thought it'd be nice to just wonder, you know, what became of their life? How did they live this out? Who were the people that they talked to immediately? Did other people around them see that transformation? And were they also drawn to, you know, this, this transformation that had taken place in the person? Because you see, transformation occurs more than just on a spiritual level. It occurs on an emotional and a psychological level as well. I mean, not only does the soul take a journey, but the psyche, shall we say, has to take one as well. You know, despite the the various, uh, let's say, psychological foundations, you know, the foundational models, whether it's psychoanalytical or cognitive, behavioral, or humanistic, existential, you know, that, that emphasize their own strengths and limitations, they all have a common thread, you know, that despite the problem at hand, they all measure healing in terms of striving toward a more authentic life, you know, an, an experience that is best characterized by the act of finding oneself, and then living in accordance with this self. I mean, moreover, reclaiming authenticity, um, you know, by doing that, a person is much better positioned to move towards, a, let's say, a self-actualization and a genuine satisfaction with life. And I talked a little bit about this last time, you know, just, uh, you know, Abraham Maslow's self-actualization and uh, just how that, you know, just kind of like a uh, different signposts along the way, just as a person is moving towards, you know, their needs and so forth, and how, and once we reach the top of self-actualization, that we then need to go back down to the bottom and help another on this journey as well, because when we think about it, somebody else helped us. We didn't get to self being self-actualized um, all on our own. Okay. So there's also um, an existentialist psychologist, uh, Rollo May, and uh, he states that uh, this change or this transformation requires great courage to persevere and, and to preserve inner freedom, to move on in one's inward journey into new realms. In other words, it takes great, great courage. It takes perseverance. Right? But integration is the key. And uh, for people who have experienced, uh, let's say, a genuine, mystical, religious, or spiritual encounter with God, um, they are never the same. Their values and goals have undergone a life transformation from being, let's say, singular and selfish to other-centered and God-centered and benevolent. And in addition to this change, people may often struggle with trying to make sense of their encounters with God. You know, and that pulls us right back to this metaphor of a square peg in a round hole again. But a note of caution here, these, these lifelong changes do not occur overnight. They will, and they may, 
take several years for people to integrate them into their lives to fully embrace the implications and applications of just what does this mean for me now? I've worked with uh, many a people, still work with many a people who have um, had a near-death experience. And um, just a basic definition, <laughs> near-death experience here is defined as a profound psychological event that may occur uh, to a person close to death or if not near death uh, in a situation of physical or even emotional crisis. In other words, because of an accident or an illness, injury, whatever, the heart stops. They are pronounced dead. But they have this phenomena experience, a near-death experience in which they um, may see loved ones. They may meet Christ. They may meet other spiritual figures along the way. And they're confronted with everything that they have said or what was said to them or heard or what they have done. They, they know it. They, they, they hear it. They feel it. As well as, okay, you're not ready to, you know, it's not your time yet. And then they come back and they are, you know, as the body is being resuscitated, a person feels as though they're being thrown back into their bodies. But um, there are, there have been, you know, just many great visions that people have shared all over the world that a near-death experience is not exclusive to a nationality or an ethnicity or an age or, um, you know, a culture or whatever. Because children have had near-death experiences, young adults, older adults, you know, and so forth. It's, it's just one of these phenomena. And because it, it includes such a transcendental and mystical elements, um, a near-death experience is just a powerful event of, let's say, consciousness. And it is not, repeat, not a mental illness. And whether happening, you know, truly near death or under benign circumstances, the, the near-death experience contains powerful images and emotions, usually of peace and love through, you know, though sometimes terror, despair, and guilt. And a, a near-death experience may include an out-of-body experience, vivid perceptions of, let's say, movement or light or darkness, Encounters with deceased loved ones, uh, unfamiliar entities and or spiritual presences. Sometimes uh, a life review and a landscape or a sense of uh, overpowering knowledge and purpose. But getting back to the point of integration, <clears throat> when people have had these near-death experiences, yes, they are forever changed. However, research has shown in this area that it takes an average of about 12, almost 13 years, on average, for people to emotionally, physically, psychologically, and spiritually to adjust to a near-death experience. In fact, I think the longest recording, and I have to go back and make sure this is up to date, but the longest recording that I've you know, read about, known about, is 42 years. A person spent 42 years trying to integrate what their near-death experience means to them. In fact, um, actually, during this time, uh, there's research has also identified six challenges that people you know encounter when integrating their near-death experiences, and there's you know a lot of overlap 
from you know the near-death experiencer and other people who have had just very intense transformation with uh, some sort of um, you know a spiritual uh, experience or spiritual transformation. Uh, the first being uh, just processing this radical shift in reality. You know, people experience just uh, a, a radical new concept of life and death, the afterlife, or body, mind, and spirit. It's it's just they become aware of so much more. And then there's accepting the return. You know, people are sent back from what is often described as a heavenly place of unconditional love and light. I often um, kind of joke with people that, um, you know, and I I can certainly understand just, you know, arguing, <clears throat> shall we say, that why should I go back? You know, here I am in a place of just unconditional love, just bathed in that. And next thing you know, you know, a person is sent back and they're integrating their lives and they're sitting in traffic on the, on the highway and they're thinking to themselves, I came back for this. <laughs> But, um, you know, people accepting, you know, this return that, uh, you know, uh, and, and as a result, people who experience this, you know, no longer fear death, but express a yearning or a feeling or even a homesickness for the environment that they experienced during their near-death experience. And third, I mean, people want to share the experience. People feel as though they need to share what happened to them, not just to be loved and accepted, but also to help process and understand what happened. And although they, they lack the words to describe this vividness of their near-death experience, they also express frustration in talking to people who wouldn't just take what they have to say and dismiss it or even pathologize what they encountered. And there are times when, in extreme cases, divorce or career changes have occurred. Right? And even, you know, next there's integrating new spiritual values with earthly expectations. You know, people express emotional and sometimes physical pain in, in restructuring their lives and namely putting the pieces back together that may no longer fit in terms of perspectives and relationships and assumptions. You know, many people uh, have expressed the need to tell others to be more loving and forgiving in their relationships. You know, I, I've heard on more than one occasion just sitting with people who've had near-death experiences, and they remind me of this. They said, but whatever you do, forgive the people. Love the people where they are. You know, life is too short. And it's more important to be in right relationships rather than to try to be right all the time. <clears throat> and sometimes integrating near-death experiences causes a friction in other areas of a person's life in terms of their religion or politics or careers and, or other financial resources and even spirituality. Um, I do recall this one gentleman. He walked away from an easy six-figure salary just because his values had changed. He just, I, okay, that, that might have been me at one time, but I can't do that anymore. I just, I, it's not me. I, I just have to leave it, you know, because I now sense just a higher calling in my life. 
And certainly, you know, adjusting to heightened sensitivities or even supernatural gifts. You know, not everybody, but but some. You know, people often experience a major shift in their sensitivity towards uh, vibrational energy, you know, such as like strong emotions. They cannot tolerate being around or negative energy is just too difficult to be around or being acutely aware of odors or visions and tastes and sounds and touch. Just even some people express sensitivity being around technology. You know, they can't wear watches or they can't be around computers. It's just, it's it's too much. They just have this heightened sensitivity. And others, you know, also have this heightened sense of uh, intuition. <clears throat> In other words, you know, like a mental telepathy or seeing a person's aura or, or whatever. And finally, <clears throat> finding and, and living out one's purpose. You know, people often struggle with the reasons why they were sent back to, let's say, the earthly realm, and they often spend their lives discovering and fulfilling that purpose. You know, again, people have shared with me that, well, I must have been sent back for a reason, and so now I'm going to find out what that reason is. I'm going to search, and it's just that, that inner drive that they have. And some people believe that they're sent back to serve and teach others about loving unconditionally or being more tolerant toward themselves and others or, or help others to lead more authentic, spiritually rewarding lives. So for anyone who has ever gone through uh, like a transformative spiritual experience, you know, finding your bearing, let alone just coming to terms with which way is up. It can be a lifelong process, you know, uh, just from rediscovering your own true meaning and purpose in life to adjusting to, let's say, heightened sensitivities and so forth. Uh, integration is the key. Integration is the key. It, it takes time. It takes time to how do I live out such a transformation on a daily basis? And it just might take people out of their jobs. You know, it'd be just because there's such a radical shift in their understanding. And they go from being very competitive once in their life to becoming very compassionate in their life. And they, they choose not to fight anymore. They choose not to, um, you know, just struggle against people. But they, they really strive to become more loving and understanding and forgiving and compassionate. And yet... Authenticity allows one the ability to move past these, this preoccupation of things that are beyond one's control, as well as to abandon unnecessary concerns over these preconceived notions of others with respect to oneself. And in short, I mean, this is the ultimate form of empowerment and responsibility. So discovering uh, our authentic selves, as well as the daily commitment to live congruently, we experience firsthand the personal freedom and responsibility that it produces. Well, following up on my beloved analogy of climbing mountains, many people also perceive this integration of, let's say, mental health and spirituality or integrating just a powerful spiritual transformation, very similar to taking an inward journey of awareness and self-discovery. 
And yet, just as there are familiar themes of guides uh, or and fellow uh, voyagers, a person's interior journey is not taken alone. You know, there's there's others who have come alongside to accompany the person into perhaps unfamiliar territory. And this is something that I've always compared, you know, the relationship, let's say, between a therapist and a client or a, t- a teacher and a student to that of Virgil and Dante in the Inferno. It was written by Dante Alighieri. And it's his work in the Inferno is considered to be Dante's greatest work. And it records this symbolic journey through hell. And it's often rich with Christian themes of sin and salvation and redemption. And at the very beginning of the story, it sets this stage of you're going to need somebody to walk with you through this. Um, Because, you know, Dante begins that, um, you know, he's lost his path through a dark wood. And he now wanders dreadfully through the forest. And as the sun shines down on a mountain above him, this Dante attempts to climb this mountain, but he finds it this way blocked by three beasts, a leopard, a lion, and a she-wolf. <clears throat> and he's terrified, and he's also stranded. And Dante resigns himself to the dark wood and even contemplates suicide. You know, in other words, how in the world am I going to get out of this predicament? I try and... I I can't find a way out. So what am I going to do? And it's there where he encounters the the Roman poet, Virgil, who tells Dante that he has come to guide him back to his path to reach the top of this mountain. And Virgil also added that it was Beatrice, uh, Dante's uh, deceased uh, love, and two other women who sent Virgil to guide him. But first... Virgil explains that the path they will take is going to take them through hell and that they will eventually reach heaven, which is where Beatrice is waiting. And so as they approach the gates of hell, this sobering chill grips Dante and, and of course, the reader as he takes note of this haunting inscription that's above, Abandon all hope, you who enter here. And perhaps this sign is a reminder that an inward journey is not without the danger of becoming overwhelmed at what one discovers, even to the point of despair. Well, in this respect, I see the counseling process, um, you know, like the inferno, as a, a therapist or a teacher or a guru, a pastor, you know, explores the depths of a person's hell of addiction or abuse or traumatic experiences and so forth. And yet, unlike the inferno, regardless of the emotional pain and suffering and woundedness, the ones who have walked this journey before, the ones who have integrated its lessons and the ones who have been transformed are also the ones who hold out hope and wisdom and redemption as they agree to walk with their clients through this transformation towards living a more authentic life. See, what I've discovered in dealing with people's stories regarding their firsthand encounters with God 
is that what really separates, um, if we want to get into this, like a, a genuine religious spiritual experience from one that's uh, artificial, uh, is the transformation or the end result that occurs in them, or even not. So some of my questions, you know, for the person as we journey together is, as a result of having this experience, as a result of having this profound spiritual just transformation that has turned your world upside down, what do you notice about yourself that you were not aware of before? What does this experience mean for you? To what degree do you feel your life has changed? 60 degree turn, 120 degree turn, 180 degree turn, or 360 degree turn? And and where is this spiritual experience, this transformation challenging you in your life? Who are the people in your life that have noticed such a change? Who else might benefit from your experience? Who might be burdened by it? What new calling or direction in your life do you now sense? And finally, what questions remain for you? When we experience a powerful spiritual transformation, it's not the end. It's the beginning. The beginning of something better. The more we integrate and how we live out this, and how we live it out in relationships with one another, the more and more this is going to unfold, the more and more we are to embrace, the more and more also we're going to realize that we don't know what we don't know. But there is trust involved. It's a journey. It's not a race. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Thank you for spending this hour with me and invite you to be with me back here next Friday. Uh, uh, I was going to say September. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, February 25th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So in the meantime, until we talk to each other again, uh, may you be at peace. May you be safe, and may God hold us in the palm of God's hand. Take care. Bye-bye. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on PBS Radio TV.